0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I was rather surprised when I came up uh, from downstairs after teaching in the 915 hour and saw that there was like eight feet of snow outside. Um, So I suppose that will continue throughout the morning, uh, but I'm glad you're here. We have the privilege uh, that I don't want us to take for granted each week in opening God's word together. Um, we are exposing our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ and to who he is and what he's done. Um, and that is um, not something to be taken for granted, but it's, instead is something to be valued and embraced. And so I'm hopeful and prayerful that the Lord will open our hearts this morning as we once again encounter Jesus uh, in the Gospel of John. Uh, John 4, uh, as Danny just read, is where we're going to be, John 4, 43 to 54 this morning. I have a, uh, a particular problem that I want to tell you about this morning. Um, in my house, there are moments where I will be sent on a mission, something like this. Nate, can you go down to the basement and can you get the tissue paper? I'm wrapping a present and I need the tissue paper. It's on the shelf, direct instructions. It's on the shelf in the back corner next to the Christmas decorations. Sure, I think to myself, I can do that. How hard can this be? I'm a loving husband who wants to serve his wife, and so I head to the basement, to the back corner, find the Christmas decorations, and begin to search for the tissue paper. After several minutes of searching for the tissue paper, I come upstairs and cannot locate the tissue paper. Back upstairs, I gently point out that it does not appear that we are in the possession of any tissue paper at this point. We must have used it all. I have been sent on a fruitless journey downstairs. I've looked far and wide, have been unable to find said tissue paper. The wife heads to the basement, and in less than a minute, she is back upstairs holding the tissue paper (laughs) in her hand. How can this be? I looked for it, could not find it. I have the uncanny ability, it's a talent really, of looking for things and not being able to see them or find them. Now, I have heard rumors that this is something that is not just a problem with males in my household, but this could be a problem with other males in other households. I don't know if that is true or not, but I have heard those sort of rumors. This is exactly the sort of problem that many of us have, and let's bring this over now. You can see vividly how you can look for something and not see it. In the Gospel of John, this is what happens, right? People look at Jesus. They look at his ministry. They look at his miracles, his signs even, as we're going to see this morning. They look, but they don't really see. They're not able to perceive what's actually going on. What are they supposed to see? They see the miraculous happen. They see it done. They look for it. But what are they actually supposed to perceive? What are they supposed to take away from these miracles that he does? They're supposed to see his glory. They're supposed to come face to face with his character, with his glory. And they're supposed to be overwhelmed by it. And they're supposed to believe in it so I want to ask you this morning, as you are here, most of you week after week, as we're studying this gospel together, as you're experiencing opening the pages of Scripture and learning what Jesus did and watching Him and looking at Him, are you seeing Him? What are you seeing? Are these just neat stories and we're able to get some background information on them and they make maybe a little bit more sense after we walk through them? Or is your heart gripped by the reality of Christ's glory, of his character? Are you longing to know him more, to understand him better, to worship him because of who he is? Are you seeing the glory of Christ? That's the question, really, you can see it on the screen, that we're going to ask today as we get into this little section here at the end of chapter four. This section here is the the back door, the very end of an entire section of the Gospel of John. The Gospels come in cycles of miracles and of teaching that fit together, and we've been in one of those cycles from the beginning of John 2 here to the end of John 4. And today we're going to look at this last section of of this cycle within the Gospel, and we're going to see what has really been a theme throughout the entire section, how people react to and respond to the glory of Christ. Do they look and not really see, or do they see, perceive his glory, and then respond in faith and in belief? Because those are the only two responses that you really have, and that's, those are the only two responses that you will have this morning as we look at this gospel together. And I can't conjure up the second response for you. I can try to show you the gospel. I can try to show you Christ, the pages of scripture, put him on display, but only the spirit, only the spirit can work in your heart and help you to see his glory and be amazed by his glory. And believe him and trust him and have your faith in him grow as we look at him today. And so in John 4:53 or 43 to 54, here's what we're going to look at. Two expected reactions to the glory of Jesus Christ. Two expected reactions to the glory of Jesus Christ. The first one of these is in verses 43 to 49. and It is a failure to see his glory. Looking but not seeing. Look with me at verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee... Well, where had he been for two days? It's the question you should ask if you're jumping into this text with us right in the middle here. Well, remember, all the way back at the beginning of chapter 4, look back there with me at verse 3. He'd been in Jerusalem, and he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, so Jesus had been in Jerusalem, and then he's baptizing with his disciples out in the wilderness in Judea near Jerusalem, and now they're headed north to get back to Galilee. And as they go north, they have to pass through Samaria. And you know the story, if you were with us last time, of the woman at the well in Samaria, and Jesus' is, Jesus's encounter with her there, and the conversation that ensues And there's an entire discussion that happens, and his glory is put on display through that conversation. And then you get to the end of that, and look what happens in chapter 4, verses 39 to 41. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And so those are the two days where Jesus stops, meets the woman, she tells everyone about him, many come out to hear him, and he stays there and teaches and spends time with them for another two days. After those two days, in verse 43, we see that he leaves to once again take up the journey north to Galilee. Now, what will he be expecting? when he gets back to Galilee. I mean, he's had quite a season of ministry here. From the beginning of chapter 2, he was in Galilee, and he headed to Jerusalem, and now he's headed back again, passing through Samaria. So what can he expect when he gets there? Look at verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. This seems kind of out of place, I mean, in your Bible, it's probably in parentheses here, but this seems weird for this to come here. I mean, the idea in this proverb or this saying here is that a prophet is not well received among his own people or in his own town where people are familiar with him. And I think what this saying is doing here, even though it seems out of place, I think it's putting and preparing us, it's putting in place the reception that Jesus will receive when he gets back to Galilee. This is preparing us for the way in which the people are going to receive him back to Galilee. And it's putting that reception in contrast to what has just happened in Samaria. You saw what happened there. People embraced him. They believed in him. They listened to him. They called him the savior of the world, right? And so they're understanding who he is as he's revealing his glory to them. But now as he heads back to Galilee, a different reception is expected. And it's not just in Galilee. The point of this is not just this little region here, but it's all of the Jewish people. How would be he, he be received among his own people in contrast to the Samaritans? Look what happens in verse 45. They, they receive him in some ways, but not in others. Look at verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having, been, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, verse 45 is clearly connected. You can see it even more in Greek. It says, therefore, at the beginning of this in Greek, therefore, when he came to Galilee. So it's clearly connected to the saying of verse 44. And some of you are sitting there going, I don't think you're seeing this correctly. they, They welcomed him. This was a warm reception. They received him back and they are excited to have him there. I mean, it makes that clear in verse 45, right? And it does appear to be a very positive welcoming back of Jesus here. I mean, this word welcome, this is the same word that is used in Philippians to talk about Paul welcoming a financial gift. All of us welcome a financial gift. It's a very positive thing, right? And so it's the same word that's used here. So how are we saying, why am I saying this is not a a positive welcome? How is this negative here? Well, look at the reason that they welcome him. This is where you start to understand what's going on. They welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast. They had been at the Passover. They had seen all the things that he'd done there. That takes us back to chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. If you will, flip back there with me. I want you to see this. Now... When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And if you remember, we talked about this belief. It's not real and true belief. Why? Verses 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And so... It's not genuine faith here that the the people of Galilee have in Jesus. What's happening? They're excited to see him because he's a miracle worker. They'd, They'd seen him work miracles, and so they wanted more of it. They wanted him to perform more signs and miracles. That's what they're looking for. They don't actually embrace him as Messiah. They don't see his glory. They're looking at him, they see the miracles, they're fascinated by them, but they don't embrace him for who he is. It's the same posture that you're going to see throughout this gospel. In John six, you don't have to turn there, but maybe you can read it later on. We've looked at it in the past. The people experience a miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and what do they want? They want that ability. They want more food, right? And Jesus rebukes them there, telling them not to focus on that, but instead on the spiritual. And he gives some hard sayings that ultimately drive those people away because their faith is not real. It's not in Jesus and who he is. It's only in the miraculous. And so what we could say here about verses 43 to 45 is they welcome Jesus for the wrong reasons. They're excited. There's emotional energy here, but it's for the wrong reasons. They really aren't seeing his glory. And it's not only that. They welcome him for the wrong reasons, but ultimately, the people here want the gifts and not the giver. They're looking for something he can provide to them, and they're not ultimately interested in him. They want the gifts more than the giver of those gifts. Look at verse 46. So, he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Now, before we get to the specifics of the official whose son is ill, which we'll get to in a second here, notice what John the Apostle's doing. He wants us to connect this story back to the water into wine at the beginning of John 2. Both of these stories take place in the same location, Cana of Galilee. John specifically wants us to tie them back. And I won't go into detail now, but if you go back and look, both of these stories are structured in the same way. They're put together in the same way. There's a rebuke in both of them. Remember Jesus' rebuke to his mother? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. There's the same sort of reaction to that rebuke, a further insistence that Jesus do something about the circumstance and about the situation here. And so what this is telling us in John writing and putting together this gospel, both of these stories frame this section, everything in it. They bookend it, beginning and ending, and everything in the middle has to do with this same theme. And what is the theme? It's people's reaction to the glory of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's been the emphasis of that, of this whole section. You've got this conversation with Nicodemus, you've got this conversation with the woman at the well, and you've got these two miracles, and ultimately, these signs are meant to produce belief. That's the goal. But of course, here, you have him at Cana, where he turned water into wine, and then look at the rest of verse 46. You've got the situation coming up. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Some sort of leader in the community here, could be a Gentile, could be a Jewish man, we're not 100% sure, but he hears of Jesus, he hears of the miracles that he has done, and he makes the journey from Capernaum to Cana. Look at verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So he goes to Jesus, makes the journey there, and asks Jesus to come to him and to heal his son. Jesus responds here in verse 48, and this, this seems out of place when we first read it, right? Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This seems harsh, But I want you to notice here, it's probably in your Bible, there's a little note next to the word you in the ESV, and if you look down, this is in the plural. So Jesus is not just talking to this man, right? He's not just rebuking this man, the man's included in it, but it's to everybody who's there. It's to all of the people who want him there just to do miracles and to do something supernatural. He's talking to everyone who's nearby. He's talking and warning the people. He's telling the people, I don't want you to just look at the miracles. I want you to see my glory as the Messiah. You have to make the jump and connect these things to who I am. That's what he's looking for. And so Jesus knows he's going to perform this miracle here and he's preempting their reaction to it. He's framing the whole thing up in the right way. And he's doing it for you. And for me as readers of this gospel as well. And so again, let me remind you, as you read the gospels, particularly the gospel of John, miracles that Jesus do are not just indications of supernatural power. That's not where we stop when we read about these miracles. They're called signs for a reason, as we'll see later in in this passage. They point us to the character of Christ. They manifest his glory. Look back to chapter 2 in verse 11 at the first sign, the beginning of this section. What does it say? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and what? Manifested his glory. I mean, John 1 talks about this today. We earlier in the book, we behold his glory. And this is one of the ways he does these signs and he puts on display his character and his glory and he showcases it for us so that we can believe in him and who he is. True faith, not just excitement about the supernatural. Now at this point, in response to what Jesus says here, the, the official is in desperation mode, as you and I probably would be too. And so he pushes a little bit harder on Jesus. Look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, I don't want to read too much into his response here, but he's very persistent, which shows, I think, some indication that he understands Jesus can do this, but he still wants Jesus to come down to Capernaum. He still kind of wants things on his terms here. He wants him to journey there. And so I think in this whole section here, even in the officials, the guy whose son is sick, in his initial response, and even certainly in the response of all the people wanting Jesus there just to do miracles, I think what we see here is why Jesus gives this harsh warning, because this is a very common response to Jesus Christ, and it's common, I think, even still today. People tend to miss who Jesus is. They get fascinated by all the wrong things. They miss the reality of who he is. They don't see that he's the Messiah, the promised one, that he is the son of God. They're blind to it. And people have been doing this for 2,000 years. We don't see his glory. We misread him. We don't understand who he is. We're blind to the truth. This happens in all sorts of ways, but one that application that I want to make that I think is particularly prominent for you and I today is that we tend to fall in love with the gifts of God rather than the giver. We tend to have our focus and our attention and our affection on the things that we have instead of the giver of those gifts. And it's incredibly easy for you and I to do this because we live in a very affluent and very comfortable society. We're not used to having our lifestyles disrupted. We're not used to things being uncomfortable. We're used to being able to get what we want when we want it. We get used to things going well. It's our normal operation of life. So then I think what happens is over time we slowly build our lives around wealth, around comfort, around ease, and we don't even realize we're doing it, but our affections are drawn more to a way of living and to the gifts of God than they are to God himself, and we start to misunderstand who Jesus is, and we tend to miss his glory. We tend to want God and nice things, too, and there's nothing wrong with nice things, of course, but they have to be put in their proper place, and our affections have to be drawn to God instead of nice things. Now, God has a way of using suffering to pull us out of this affection for the gifts of God and for the stuff that we have. He has a way of doing that. But as you hear me say that, that God has a way of using suffering to to draw us away from his gifts and to him, When I say that, don't hear me saying that God is sort of pulling the strings in a vindictive way. And he's going to zap you and cause suffering because you like stuff too much. That's not what is going on. What's really going on when suffering is brought into your life and when God allows some of that to happen to you is he is being loving in allowing that to happen in order to draw us away from a broken cistern where we think our satisfaction will be found, and we think the water is clean and good, and we can live life this way and continue to drink from this broken cistern. We think it'll satisfy. And God's saying, no, no, I don't, I don't you can't drink out of that and be satisfied. I'm the fountain of living water. I'm the only one that can satisfy you. And so out of love, God directs our attention in times of suffering away from things and from stuff and draws our affections toward him and back to him and so that we learn to love the giver more than the gift and we rejoice in the gifts when we have them but our ultimate affection is drawn to him and that principle that reality of loving the gift the giver more than the gift is exactly what we're talking about in our second expected reaction here When you boil that down, what it really means is I have faith in him. I see him for who he is, and my affections are drawn to him for who he is. And this is the expected, the second expected reaction. Faith in the one who brings life out of death. So failure to see his glory is one reaction that many have. They look, but they don't really see. And second is the the ones who see and believe. They have faith in the one who brings life out out of death. Look how Jesus responds to the official. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. So far, the official has asked Jesus to come to Capernaum twice. What does Jesus do? He says, you go. I'm going to stay here. You go and your son will live. Now, no doubt, the official has no category for this. I love it. He has no category for Someone who can heal his son at a distance like this. He thinks Jesus has to be in the presence of his son in order to heal him. He has no concept that this sort of thing could happen. But notice his response in verse 50. And this is where I think things start to change for him. This is where I think faith starts to flower in his heart. Verse 50 the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What happens here? He takes Jesus at his word and he acts as if what Jesus says is true and is going to happen, right? Jesus says go, he hears him, he considers Jesus to be trustworthy and he acts as if what he says is going to happen, as if it's true, what could have happened here is the man could have just stood there and argued with Jesus. Come on, I know you need to really you need to come down. And he could have claimed that that was a form of faith. I know you can heal him if you will come down. And he could have continued to insist on things on his terms and in his way. He could have claimed to believe Jesus and then not moved a muscle and stood there. But his actions in that situation would have proven that his faith was not real. What shows the reality of his faith? He goes. He listens, hears the word of Jesus, and acts on it. His actions put on display his faith. Look at verses 51 and 52. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. My kids have a children's book about this story, and the children's book is called The One O'Clock Miracle, which I love. That would have been the seventh hour. One o'clock. And he, he meets his servants, and they come out to him, and he finds out it's exactly when Jesus spoke for him to go and when he believed that Jesus was trustworthy initially, he took him at his word and he acted on it, that everything happened. Look at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live and he himself believed and all his household The same faith that he exhibited first in verse 50, where he took Jesus at his word and believed it and acted on it, that faith continues to grow here. Now he has seen Jesus speak his word, and it has proved true. It has come about, and Jesus has proved himself to be trustworthy. And so now they see all of that, and they genuinely believe in who he is, and they trust what he's done. Now, this morning, I want to talk about faith a little bit because this is so prominent in the Gospel of John, and it's prominent in this story here as well. This is really, I think, faith or belief in Christ is the key in this whole section that we've seen so far. I mean, what happened at the wedding in Cana, in Galilee, when Jesus performed his sign? Chapter 2 and verse 11. He manifested his glory and his disciples' believed in Him. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus in John 3, verses 14 and 15? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Belief. Those who believe will have eternal life. Those who see His glory as He's lifted up on the cross and trust in Him will have eternal life. What about the introduction to the book? John 1, verses 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, which is this is what we're seeing in Galilee. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. Here's the definition of receiving him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. What does the Apostle John say in John 3 and verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What happens in Samaria after the conversation with the woman at the well? Verses 41 and 42 of chapter 4. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Over and over again, even early on in these chapters, The glory of Christ is held up and the call is to respond to that glory in faith, belief, and belief that leads to eternal life. So it's pretty important that you and I understand what it means to believe in Jesus. What are we talking about? What is the gospel calling you to as you sit here and listen to me this morning? to this book, explained, as you see Jesus in these stories. What are you being called to? What are we talking about when we talk about belief in Jesus? For starters, belief in Jesus is not the same thing as belief in the existence of God. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking here about not being an atheist, As long as you believe in God, you're good. That's not what the Gospel of John teaches. Now, obviously, belief in God is important. In fact, belief in God as the creator of the world is the prerequisite to belief in Jesus. You have to start there. If you don't believe there's a God, you can't get to that God was incarnate in the Son. But what John is talking about, what the gospel is talking about here is not a belief in some sort of deity or even in the God of the Bible in his existence. That is not what is necessary for eternal life. So what is? Well, faith in Jesus always starts with knowledge. There has to come some knowledge into your mind and into your heart before you can trust a person, because that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about trust in a person. That's what John is talking about here. That's what this official experienced with Jesus, was trust in a person. Trust in a person cannot exist without some knowledge of that person's character or Knowledge of his character based on previous interaction with that person. I have seen him or her do this in this circumstance. I've seen them, seen them respond this way or that way. Therefore, I trust their character. I mean, think about this in normal life, right? Sometimes we tend to over-spiritualize faith and trust. But let's, let's talk about this in normal life so that you can understand what it means to believe in Jesus. You act in faith in another person or an institution all the time. In fact, I would say the world does not run without trust in someone else and faith in another person. I trust that when I turn my money over to the bank and the bank teller that he or she is going to put that money in the bank... And I trust that when I do that, I wouldn't do it unless I trusted that I would be able to get that money out again when I want it. So I have some level of confidence in that person's character that that money will end up in the right place. I will not hand my money to some random person on the side of the street claiming to be a bank operating out of the back of his or her vehicle. I trust and therefore I act based on that, right? Think about this when you are looking for a mechanic on your car. I want to be able to trust the mechanic that I take my car to, and that's one of the big things about moving to a new area. You find a mechanic you can trust. What does it mean to trust my mechanic? It means that I use him and i'm confident that when i turn my car over to him and leave his shop that he is going to actually repair what he says he's going to that i can trust his character to the point where i can rely on him to get done what he is going to do and he can get that done what i ask him to do because he has the ability to do it i believe that his ability extends far beyond my own which is not that difficult in that case right okay so You understand and I understand what it means to trust another person, even at a basic level in daily life. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky when you talk about trusting Jesus. What does it mean to trust a Jewish man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago? It feels different. In some ways it is. How is it possible for me to trust someone who walked the earth 2,000 years ago? Put my faith in him. Well, in some ways it's similar. It starts with a knowledge of his character, of who he is. And then here's the key point this morning when it comes to trusting Jesus I can actually operate faith in him when there comes a moment when a need arises where I need something that connects me to this man. Right? There's some moment of interaction. There's some need that arises where I have to trust him because I need something that he has and that he offers. That happens in normal life, happens with my mechanic, but in particular, that happens with the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes about as there is an opportunity to trust through a particular need that connects to people. So when I need help installing something at my house... I have the chance to exercise my trust in my brother-in-law, for example, because he knows what he is doing. He has the resources to meet my need, and so I put my trust in his knowledge and in his, in his ability to meet my need. The need is the key point where faith can begin to operate. The need creates the opportunity to trust his ability and to have my need met. That's where it starts. You see that in the story before us, don't you? This man has a need. He needs his son to be healed. And he goes to Jesus because he believes that Jesus can meet that need. And his faith grows as he finds out Jesus really can meet that need. The need creates a connection point. J. Gresham Machen said this, It is not enough for us to know that Jesus is great, And good, it is not enough for us to know that he was instrumental in the creation of the world and that he is now seated on the throne of all being. These things are indeed necessary to faith, but they are not all that is necessary. If we are to trust Jesus' personal faith, we must come to him personally and individually with some need of the soul, which he alone can relieve. That's the point where faith comes into play. Every person is born with a need that creates a connection point to Jesus because he can meet your need. The opportunity is there. What is that need? You and I are born spiritually dead. We don't have the ability to forgive ourselves, to earn forgiveness of on our own. We don't have the ability to rise up and build a relationship with God on our own. We cannot get ourselves out of this situation. There's nothing we can do. We are like the boy in this story. Can't do it ourselves. We have this need, but we need resources that Jesus has. What resources does he have that meet this need that then require that connection point and that trust? Why do we go to him? Well, when I go to my mechanic, he has the knowledge and he has the ability to fix my car. So what is true about Jesus? And this is the point where the Gospel of John comes into play. We need to have knowledge of who Jesus is and we come to him in faith because of who he is and because of the resources that he offers. This is what is put on display in the Gospel of John. Verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did, revealing his glory, John 2.11, when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This book is about showing you the glory, the resources, the character, the magnificence of Jesus Christ. So we need to recognize our need and know that he can meet that need through his perfect life and his death on the cross. And then we can actually come to him today and trust in him because he is not a Jewish man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago who is now dead. I cannot trust my great-grandfather because he's dead. He has no ability to meet my need and to help me. But that's not true of Jesus. He rose from the dead and now he is alive and he is sovereign and he is reigning and he has defeated Satan and he has all the resources available to meet the needs that I have. And so faith requires me to recognize my need and to throw myself on the resources that he has. So here's what this looks like. See your need for forgiveness of sins. Understand at a deep level that that is your greatest need in the universe. You need a relationship with God. You need to have God's wrath turned from you and be forgiven of your sins and then know the character and the glory of Jesus Christ that he has the resources to meet that need. That's why he came to earth to provide that for you and for me and then turn to him in repentance and say, I see my need. I see your resources. I want what you are offering. I'm looking at him lifted up on the cross and saying, I need that. And I don't want my sin anymore. I need your forgiveness. And ask him to meet that need and then believe that based on his character and his trustworthiness, he will do it. That's what faith is. That's what happens in this story. And faith grows. And this is not just a growing faith for unbelievers who are encountering Jesus for the first time. This is how the Christian life works, by faith. Every day I see more and more of my needs. I see my sin. I see how I mess up. I feel anxiety. I feel fear. And I know that I have needs. But then I turn outward in faith and I look and I see that Jesus offers the resources that I need to have those needs met. And so I turn from my sin every day, I repent and I turn to him and I say, I need what you are offering. I need what you have that is given to me in the pages of scripture. And I want it. And I trust you for it every day. This is how the gospel becomes operative in our lives. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Turn from sin, go back to the resources of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let me finish by giving you three questions here this morning for you to discuss in small groups. These are on the small group sheet on the back back there, but they're also available for you to think through on your own as well. Real quick, three questions, and then I'll pray. In the last week, have you recognized some area of sin in your life or some need that you have? If you have not recognized that, why? Because we all have those areas. If you haven't recognized it, is there a possibility that there is blind pride at work keeping you from seeing your need? So, recognize the need. Now, if you do recognize some need that you have, have I looked to Jesus and the resources that he offers in the gospel to meet that need? Know the truths of the gospel and look to those truths to meet that need and turn to him every day in faith in the gospel. And then the last question, it's more of a statement, is list one area in your life where you need to show the reality of your faith by acting on what Jesus says is true. The man here who hears Jesus and goes, acts and proves the reality of his faith that he believes, where is that true for you? What would change in your life is if you you acted as if what Christ says in his word is true. So take those three questions, work them through on your own and in your small groups, and I'll pray. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the work of Christ. The resources that he has that are available to us and that we need to trust and believe in him day after day. Give us the strength and the ability to do that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.